Welcome to the Brent Holland Show. Tonight, folks, very serious subject matter with a very serious man. The book is called Ramadi Declassified. Our guest tonight is Lieutenant Colonel Tony Dean. He is retired a colonel, but when he was over in Ramadi in 2006, he was a lieutenant colonel indeed. Before we get started, I'd just like to dedicate this show to a fallen comrade, Andrew Miller, who died of an IED over in Afghanistan 2010. And uh, we remembered you, Andrew, and we will never forget. And also to my good friend, Captain Ray Wees, who was over in Afghanistan as well. Two tours of duty as a frontline surgeon made at home. Thank you, Ray, for your service. Colonel Tony Dean, sir, thank you for your service and to your family as well. Oh, thanks for having me on. It is my great honor and pleasure, sir. Thank you, sir, for coming on. Now, I want to talk a little bit before we get started about some of the people that you worked with. Some of them are pretty impressive folks, like your driver, Mr. Rompel. I was wondering if you could tell us some of the uh, stories behind him and where he came from and um, how he problem solves. Yeah, you know, I, I was really lucky that I had uh, good kids on my crew. And, uh, you know, we were all tankers, so it's all about the guys on your crew. And, uh, uh, you know, Mike Rompel was, was a tanker. He loved being a tanker. Uh, you know, it was time for me to get a new driver. Uh, the reason he got the job is because he said that uh, he didn't want it. So I said, yeah, you don't, don't really want people hanging out with the colonel that wants to be there. So uh, that kid never complained, never, uh, you know, always ready for the mission. And we went out every day, and him and, uh, uh, you know, the gunner, uh, Brown, uh, they, they just they were just amazing guys. And they were just a microcosm, you know, just the great kids that I served with. How do you come to rely on their judgment, sir? Well, it, it comes with trust, and uh, it comes with practice. So uh, my unit spent a lot of time getting ready to go to Iraq, uh, both in Germany, and then we were actually held in Kuwait for about six months, uh, because at the time the war was uh, considered being won. Uh, and uh, we did a lot of training together. And plus, you know, with the soldier, you, uh, you, know, you kind of trust people from, from the word go. You know what I mean? They're wearing the uniform. And you got to have that uh, have faith in them uh, until they prove you wrong instead of making people prove themselves. There's a great story as well I'd like you to tell about Chief Forgash's his wounds and uh, also what you told first class folks afterwards. That was funny. okay. So uh, um, we had a really unique situation where uh, I had an Iraqi Army battalion that worked for me, and how that actually worked. You know, no, no one asked too many questions. We just got the job done. So they said, hey, these guys work for you. Different army, whatever. So I said, okay. So in that, I actually had a team of Marines uh, led by Lieutenant Colonel Chris Stillings, who another great American. And uh, Chief Forgash was part of his team, and he didn't have enough people to go around. So I gave uh, some of the guys from my battalion, some of the senior NCOs, medics, I gave them to uh, Chris's team, and they were out there training the Iraqi Army. And uh, out there leading the patrol, and, uh, you know, Chief Forgash, who I had built a pretty good friendship with in the few weeks we were there, um, was out on patrol with the Iraqis, and the patrol got ambushed, and uh, uh, the chief got shot in the stomach. It was horrible. And uh, Sergeant Folks, who, who was a great uh, NCO uh, going into it, uh, but, you know, kind of a quiet guy, not the guy that you really expect to be uh, Audie Murphy, uh, all of a sudden uh, he hears this call that folks get shot, 
or, or that yeah that uh, uh, Chief Forgesh gets shot, folks like is a, safety of the compound of the Iraqi compound jumps up, jumps in a Humvee, uh, grabs some poor MP that just happened to be standing there, tells him to get on the machine gun, and drives into a firefight with the sole purpose of finding his buddy. And, you know, his buddy, they'd only been together for a couple of weeks at this time, but he, he, you know, was on his team. He was going to save his teammate. He he found uh, Chief Forgash, who was actually bleeding with a pretty serious uh, wound in his stomach, uh, staunches the bleeding, throws him in the Humvee, and uh, and races to the uh, to Charlie Med, uh, get back on Camp Ramadi. And, you know, the, the surgeons, who we had a great surgical team there, uh, they they said, hey, if he wouldn't have got here this quick, he wouldn't have made it. So, so folks, folks, you know, broke about 50 rules in doing this, right? You know, I mean, true heroism, but, you know, there, there were some rules to also be had in the combat. And so I called folks and I said, hey, uh, you know, fill out the award form. And folks is like, I'm just doing my job. I'm just doing my job. I said, yeah, yeah, I got it, Chief. Or, I got it, Sarge. You know, you, you, you just doing your job. But I said, you either fill this out or else I'm going to, you know, take some judicial punishment against you. Uh, because you broke all these rules and you know and to me to this day I remember I guess you know folks took a long time to to decide whether to to get the medal or to get the punishment <laughs> well luckily he went with the medal but uh, you know just a, a great guy who uh, like a lot of the leaders we had just rose to the occasion uh, based on necessity and Chief Forgash's uh, whereabouts and, and his prognosis he actually was a uh, Marine reservist, and uh, he had a battle on his hand for a few years, uh, but he is now a, uh, a sheriff's deputy in uh, in California someplace. He went back went back on the job, Thank God. and uh, just uh, I actually talked to him and write the book, uh, and uh, just just a great guy, and, you know, quiet. And he, I think he's working on getting his PhD right now. Just a, just a great great man, sir. There are many that didn't come home. How do you deal with that on a personal level and to keep the morale up in the company, in the battalion? Well, you know, at the time, uh, we took we took a lot of casualties. And uh, uh, sadly, it was, uh, you know, 16 within the task force, uh, counting everybody. And then uh, uh, another guy that was part of my battalion that was in another task force. At the time, I personally, I couldn't dwell on it because although I lost a guy, I still had 500, 600 guys to look out for. You realize that those guys were all volunteers. They were trying to accomplish a mission. They believed in the mission. Their life was not uh, sacrificed in vain. They they were out there, you know, defending their country and uh, they're, they're American heroes, just like the guys uh, who had it much worse. The guys who went ahead on Omaha Beach or in uh, in the Chosen Reservoir. What would you say to the students that are listening right now about the sacrifice those people made? Well, you know. Um, the, the, the term selfless service has kind of fallen out of favor, I think, in, in modern culture right now. But uh, uh, these guys, they, they joined the military to be part of something bigger, and they saw the threat. You know, most of these kids joined after 9-11, and so they saw the threat to America. The one thing that really struck me to the guy was we weren't over there to kill people or to teach them a lesson or anything. We were out there to solve the problem. And the solving the problem and what these guys showed and did and the responsibilities that was kind of thrust upon some of these guys at some really junior levels. I mean, lieutenants who are 22, 23 years old, captains that are 25, 26, you know, sergeants that are, you know, some of them as young in the 20, you know, 20. Yeah. Uh, but these guys went out there and their 
out there every day interfacing with the population, making life and death decisions. And, you know, people want to badmouth this generation, but there are some great, great young, uh, young men and women in this, uh, in this generation. Gives you hope. Can you tell some of those stories of those young 20 year olds, the lieutenants, the sergeants, the NCOs as well? Y yes, One I that can. comes to mind? Um, you know, th there, there was a couple of them. There was three lieutenants in, in my Bravo company, uh, Lieutenant Ian Blackstone, yes, uh, Lieutenant uh, Perfecto uh, uh, Sanchez, and uh, Lieutenant Mike Leteri. And uh, there was a fourth lieutenant, Lieutenant Scott Love, and he was killed the, uh, the third day that we were there in the IED strike. And so we had to jumble around the platoons. Uh, Ian ended up taking over another platoon uh, just because we, had, we were missing you know, key leaders. Uh, and then uh, later on, something else happened, and, uh, and Ian ended up taking over the third platoon. Um, and here's a kid that just, you know, whatever we threw on him, he would just say, yes, sir, and he'd go out and do it. Perfecto and Mike, they didn't have the benefit of the train-up. Those kids graduated college, went to infantry school, went to uh, ranger school and airborne school, and they came straight into combat. You know, both of them, first time out, hit an IED came under attack the first day out by themselves. They went on every day, didn't falter, didn't waver, trusted their NCOs around them. The guys in my uh, Bravo Company 26, Team Dealer, those guys, what, what they went through, you know, they probably had about as worse as anyone in the war did. I mean, the company ended up taking 25% casualties. Are there lessons learned that you observe, sir, from these young folks that the students listening right now can integrate into their own lives? Well, I, I think what, uh, what they learned is, you know, trust your teammates and make sure you what you're doing is solving the problem and that, that was one of the things that struck us at the battalion level and at the uh you know down at the company level it's like are we solving the right problem mm -hmm. and you know by by focusing on you know hey we need to find a solution to this instead of just like hunting down terrorists uh hey let, let's you know we were given the mission to to help the iraqi government build a safe and secure iraq and that's what we did. And too, and too many people kind of got spun on, hey, we're going to do this, or we're going to, we're going to build schools, or we're going to, uh, you know, hunt terrorists, or we're going to do all these different things. Like, well, what's really going to help build a secure Iraq? And one was building police, you know, help getting police, and uh, two was, uh, uh, you know, trying to get some political uh, accommodation, which that came later. I mean, that wasn't our initial charter. But, uh, but that, that all kind of worked out where we are there. But, you know, make sure that you're, you know, one of the questions I'd always ask my guys is, how's this helping? Whatever we're doing, it's like, is this helping or is this not helping? Mm. And if it was helping, we'd keep doing it. And if it wasn't, we'd figure out something else to do. Okay. What were some of the things that were working? What were some of the things that weren't working? Well, um, one of the things that wasn't working was the Americans were, uh, in, the Americans were really providing all the security. The, the Iraqi police had uh, 200 policemen in it, in a city of 300,000, which was considered the most dangerous city in the world. In the world. Yeah. In the world. And so, uh, and the Iraqi army was disbanded uh, after the uh, after 2003. And so it was just, by 2006, it was just starting to get its feet underneath itself. And, and it wasn't very effective. So security fell upon the Americans. We couldn't really figure out who was who. I told one of the shakes one time, why can't the Americans do this? Why, why are you guys letting this happen? I told him very frankly, out of frustration mainly, was I'm from Nebraska. So if you go back to my hometown, Nebraska, I can tell you 
who's a good guy and who's a bad guy, who belongs, who doesn't. And we will never understand a different culture. There's cultural differences that if you're not there, you, you'll never understand. We figured out that what we need to do is recruit police. We did have some people that were friendly to uh, the coalition. Sitar was this this charismatic guy that uh, carried a Chrome 45 Texas Sequest Centennial six shooter. I don't know where he got it from, but but he carried this thing over his robes and uh, uh, very boisterous, very dynamic. We turned to these guys and we said, "Hey, we need your help recruiting policemen." And uh, and so they started helping us get guys to join the police, which wasn't arming the tribes, which wasn't you know creating a militia. It was, "Hey, this is the legitimate security forces." And and uh, over time, the, actually, the first one was on the Fourth uh, of July, two thousand six, and uh, uh, it was at their house. We they even volunteered to have it at their house, and uh, their house took mortar fire, and we I I wasn't there, so I drove over there after the mortar attack, and uh, I said, uh, um, you know, hey guys, I'm sorry, you know, their families are there, their kids are there, and they're like, well, and the mortars didn't really hit their compound; it hit some of our vehicles. Uh, around the edge and they said, uh, well, you know, Allah made the mortars miss, so, you know, why would we stop? And I was like, wow, these guys, these guys are, are very, very serious about what needs to happen. And they, they gained a lot of trust in my mind that day. And so uh, uh, by September, uh, actually on the 9th of September, uh, 2006, they, Sitar uh, uh, handed me the paperwork and says, here's our proclamation for the Ambar awakening and we, uh, we uh, respect the rule of law. We're going to back the government in Baghdad, and we're going to throw the coalition forces, and together we'll rid uh, uh, Ramadi of Al Qaeda. So this and is after, a huge breakthrough, without question. Yeah, because you're partnering with the local people, and as you said, you come from Nebraska. You're able to tell the good guy from the bad guy. Very difficult when you've got insurgents intertwined with the populace over there. Who's the bad guy? Who's the good guy? By partnering, very smart move with the local folks and the local leaders, they're able to know and tell you who the good guys are and the bad guys are. Well, and the other thing too was with the lack of police force, um, the people had no one to call. And, and actually a brilliant move on Al-Qaeda's part is they blew up the uh, cell phone towers too. So there was no way to call. So uh, the, the terrorists, as in today, uh, they're, they're very good at uh, intimidating you know, and when necessary, murdering the, the, the population to get them under control. But they, their biggest tool was intimidation. And so, you know, I'd always, you know, a little empathy went a long way in their situation. They're like, well, why don't they get rid of these guys? It's like, well, if, uh, and if there was no police and an armed guy show up at my door today, he would have a problem. Probably three or four guys, they'd probably have problems. But if six guys show up, well, then I got to listen to them because there's not much I can do, you know. No. Uh, wife can only reload so fast. So um, it wasn't that many people that were just terrorizing the city. And, you know, the beauty of Sitar and the rest of the shakes was, uh, you know, whatever, Shane or High Plains Drifter, Drifter you know, he got the, the school moms and the, and the shopkeepers together. And they said, hey, together we're going to fight the bullets. And that's what they did. And that's what they did, and that brought some stability big time, very quickly, almost overnight, you're right, uh, yeah. right away into the city. And that's exactly right. You gave There was uh, a force there that people could rely on to provide security in order yeah. to, to carry on a normal life. So, and it wasn't us. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, and, 
and the problems you know, the, uh, the, 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 the answers to the problems lay in the in in Ramadi laid in the in the Sunni community. And uh, and we just helped bring a, a moderate voice to the forefront, and he was able to uh, pull things together. Okay, let's go back into combat a little bit. When your guys were going down the street, what kind of what kind of um, forces were they up against? They were snipers, obviously. There was IEDs. What kind of things did they have to be cognizant of all the time, and on well, edge? The, the the biggest threat to us was uh, IEDs, mm. and uh, there was some snipers, and there was a few pretty good sized ambushes. One of the frustrating things was the enemy wouldn't stay and fight. You know the mental stress because you never knew they weren't wearing a uniform. It wasn't the Cold War. It wasn't even Desert Storm. You know you knew who was who. So here are people. Uniform. Terrorists were very good. I mean they would hide behind women and children. One of the hotbeds of terrorism we figured out was the university there in Ramadi, Al Abu University. And I'm sure that the terrorists would have loved for us to roll in there and shoot the place up. What a propaganda win. Yeah. So one of the things is we talked to these guys and we talked about the young leaders was, hey, you got to realize, you know, that uh, your actions could, can well be on the uh, national news, you know, or the international news, you know. Mm -hmm. And so your actions, you know, represent America and, and they're probably going to get filmed. And so... Uh, the guys were very, not, not out of fear, but they were very careful uh, when we use violence. You know, we, we, we tried to you know, be very, use violence only when necessary. And then when it was necessary, it was, we used it overwhelmingly. But, uh, uh, you know, just going down the street, you know, one of the strains on these guys every day was, well, is that some 20-year-old guy hanging out on the street corner or is that a trigger man? And that's one of the things that they were, our guys got pretty good at doing. Uh, judging who was who. It's completely different from open field warfare, isn't it? I mean, you're okay. right in an urban center and you don't know who's your buddy and who's and who's going to call somebody to uh, launch that RPG at your head as well. Now, folks, I don't want you to think that uh, Colonel Tony Dean escaped it either. He was there in firefights and there's a wonderful line that he said, you know things are going very bad. I'm going to paraphrase it, <laughs> sir. You know things are going very bad when the commander is engaged in battle, and you indeed were engaged in battle several times. Can you tell one of those stories, sir? Especially the story well, where we ended up on the wrong side of the street alone. Well, I, you know, I, I'll be honest with you. I, I you know, I, through bad luck and probably, uh, uh, you know, incompetence on my part. Luckily, I had Sergeant Roberts, who uh, was the head of my security detail, that kept me from uh, from uh, getting uh, <laughs> from getting too far out ahead of myself. And uh, I, I was an enlisted private, and sometimes you uh, you know think you're 18 again. <laughs> so, uh, um, you know, I, I tell you, I, I think a little bit better story is uh, um, when we first got there. Uh, I, I I was a veteran of Desert Storm. Right, so I had a combat patch. I've been to combat, and uh, and I had not been to Iraq since the uh, invasion in 2003. So I was like, hey, I've got this down. I'm a, I'm a combat vet. I, I know what I'm doing. And the first time that we went out, uh, uh, the outgoing company commander from the unit we were replacing and the incoming commander, Captain Lou Lansone, uh and uh, his his uh, uh, crew. So 
only three Humvees went out. And at that day, uh, there was Al-Qaeda drove a 500-pound bomb in a dump truck into an Iraqi compound. And it blew up. The inside of it caught on fire, so we had to evacuate. And so the first three people to show up was me, Captain Lansone, and uh, the outgoing company commander. And so we found ourselves in this tremendous firefight. And that's kind of where the quote came from was I, I kept thinking to myself, this isn't at all like there's a storm. This, this is nothing like a desert storm. And so, you know, after that day, I said, okay, everything that I thought was going to happen, I was probably wrong on, and we need to kind of start rethinking everything we're doing. Actually, it's Gunner uh, Corporal Jackson who, who, who uh, read the book and then uh, told me, it's like, yeah, I was the one shoot first. But, <laughs> but uh, you know, these guys, we just started firing, and then more guys came, and people trusted their leaders, and... Uh, you know, we had trusting guys, and uh, actually Chief Forgash was a hero that day, uh, helping run up the Iraqis. You know, really just like, okay, I spent six months getting ready for this thing, and now on day one, it's like, okay, i got to rethink everything. How did you, you know, you left um, Ramadi pretty much intact, and everything was going fine. Then all of a sudden, Daesh comes along, and they take it over in 2015. Latest word has it that the Iraqi government says they've taken it back. How did you feel? Two things. When your good friend Sheikh Sattar was murdered, and how did you feel when um, Daesh took over Ramadi? Well, um, when Sattar was killed, you know, I, I'd come back and I moved on. I changed and I was in a new job. I was helping train people to get ready to go to Iraq, and uh, I was. Uh, I got a. I was talking on the phone, and uh, and the guy I was talking on the phone said, "Hey, uh, go look at the TV. Is this the shake you you told me about?" And, and I saw that Sitar uh, was killed by uh, Al Qaeda, and I remember thinking, uh, I, I had that the same uh, you know, feeling in my stomach, and I used to get this headache every time we lost a soldier. And it's like, you know, I, I really considered him, you know, one of us, and more importantly, you know, I, I like the guy. I mean, me and him. You know, we, we had business dealings and, you know, there was a certain level of trust and mistrust between us. But, you know, personally, we kind of got along. You know, he'd always, he'd tell me, hey, when this is all gone, when this is all done, everything's uh, fine. We'll, we'll go to, we'll go down to Abu Dhabi. We'll paint the town. <laughs> okay. So, you know, but, but you know, I mean, we, we have a pretty good yeah. relationship. Um, when Ramadi fell in uh, uh, 2015, um, I'll tell you, it, it, it was kind of disheartening. Mm. And it was also downplayed in the media, too. Oh, you know. Yeah. But uh, mainly because of what the people, what, what my soldiers went through to take it back. And and the soldiers of the Ray First Combat Team, the brigade, I mean, it's just one of my guys. It was the entire brigade and then the Marines and the SEALs that were there. I mean, it, it was a team effort for the people of Vermont. But for what those guys went through, and then more importantly, of what, what could have been. And, and that's what really kind of upset me. And, and we saw it coming uh, after the fall of 2011 that, you know, the, the, the really could, the, right before we pulled out, there was a real chance at a lasting piece there. And then it all just kind of got uh, uh, frittered away. Prospects for the future? You know, we, the only news we get, of course, is mainstream media, and they always show the Iraqi army primarily in reverse. And... Is that justified? Well, you know, I, I think uh, a, a soldier's only as good as his leaders and his trust in the government, right? So um, I think that 
you know, there, there's a lot of Iranian influence in uh, big time in, in in Iraq right now, and until the the Sunnis see the government is representative and the Kurds. You know, everyone says, oh, we need to divide the country up into three. Well, if you get a small enough map, that makes sense. But when you start asking the hard questions, well, who gets Baghdad? Who gets Mosul? And then even at the, you know, the micro level, oh, so, so my farm has got to be given to another, to somebody else. Well, th that'll never happen. So to me, unifying the government is the answer. And, uh, you know, Prime Minister Maliki, who, you know, for a while there was saying all the right things. Uh, you know, he turned out to be pretty uh, secular and, uh, you know, started purging the Sunnis from his government. Yeah. Um, and then after that, uh, the, the new guy, uh, Hyder, uh, he, uh, or a body, uh, he, uh, uh, he, he was saying the right things, but, but you know, uh, saying the right things and doing the right things are two different things. So yeah, to me, until yeah. there's a real... Uh, much better political coming together and, and kind of people get tired of the violence. Because the, to me, the Sunnis in Iraq are, are, are caught between two things. They're, they got the devil they know, the terrorists, who at least kind of look like them and, you know, the same religion as them. And they got the devil they don't know, which is this, you know, Shia government that's, you know, depending on who you listen to from, the, from you know, the Shias or, or Iran is out to uh, kill them all. Yeah, I always, I'm always worried when uh, Iran's involved in anything because they have their own agenda. But we're selling them planes now, so who knows? Um, all that to say, uh, sir, I'd like, to, sp I'd like uh, to say a few words about the sacrifice that your family made while you were overseas. Well, you know, um, uh, my wife was a, uh, uh, what was called the, the, the uh, family support group which was we left soldiers back, you know, non-commissioned officers and, and, and a captain back to kind of look after the families. Um, so she was the advisor to that. But, you know, something, the uh, uh, the families of soldiers, I mean, they, they they do their best. They put on the brave face, and while we were gone, um, you know, they made the best of it. And they, they became scores for the basketball games. They are coaching Little League. And you know, uh, my, me and my wife joked. You know, she had to be the score for a uh, intramural basketball game, and she, you know, who knows what the score was or the time was kept. You know, but but they did what was necessary. Uh, and my and my two girls, you know, uh, I'm I moved them. Uh, one was a freshman. One was in seventh grade. Uh, or no, I'm sorry. One was, one was a tenth grader. The other one was in eighth grade when we moved to uh, when we moved to Germany. Didn't know a kid in the high school. You know, and and they disintegrated. And uh, uh, you know, it's not just during deployment; it's uh, the train up. It's uh, you know, both my girls went to three high schools in three years, and, and and you know, that that's not my family; that's a lot of families. And uh, uh, what what the families do to support the soldiers who are supporting our country, uh, you know, uh, people give them a lot of lip service, but they deserve that. Yeah, that's more and more without question so our final question i always ask this to everybody who comes on the brent holland show and that is you're literally talking to every canadian university student across the country right now from coast to coast to coast three coasts in canada and international students a lot of american students end up in canadian universities for whatever reason and across the world as well what would you say to them um i would say that uh 
you know, you, your generation is finding itself in a, in a very uh, uh, difficult time. But uh, uh, there's a lot of good in the world, despite what your uh, the villainization that you read on your Facebook page. And uh, and, and you got to look for the good. And uh, I'll go back to one of my personal heroes, uh, uh, JFK, was uh, that's not what your country can do for you, but you can do for your country. And I think, you know, be that Canada or, or just for the forces of good. And, and the other quote I kind of throw out there is, uh, you know, that uh, that there there are evil people in the world. Yes, and if you don't speak against the evil people, they win. Absolutely, and we don't want that to I think, happen. I think all. Emerson's spinning in his grave on that one. <laughs> no, no, I don't think so. I think, and the, the JFK quote was perfect. Yeah. Colonel Tony, Lieutenant Colonel Tony Dean in 2006. Colonel Tony Dean today. Um, Ramadi Declassified is the name of his book. He's just been a great guest. Thank you so much, sir, for joining us. Hey, thank you for having me on. I'm Brent Holland from The Brent Holland Show. See you all next time.